Let's see what I can do with this. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, um, we persuade, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How many are thankful for that? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things, look at verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in an acceptable time, I have heard you and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, I thank you for your word today. What a powerful text. This is so much here, way more than we could ever even begin to mine or pull out. But I pray, Lord, that the truth that you would have us to know today, you would reveal to us. I pray, God, that you would help me in my weakness. Let your strength become perfect. Give me, Lord, clarity of mind and clarity of thought. Help me to form my words in such a way that they will make sense and be clear and articulate. And I pray, God, for your anointing, though I know I do not deserve it and I have not earned it. I pray, God, that your anointing would rest upon my life. Help me to speak your word in such a way that hearts would be challenged, encouraged, changed, and transformed by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room this morning? Give us ears to hear. And let us be changed by your word today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How does that sound? Is that better? They got rid of the echo, and I'm back to being a pastor instead of an evangelist, and I feel much better. So the book ends of last week's message. I want to talk about 
very quickly what we talked about last week. We looked at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 um, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 10. Let me show you the two bookends of that. Chapter 4 and verse 7, we learn this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We learned how that our physical bodies, and if you remember the whole theme last week, was our physical body and uh, the hope that we have that someday we will shed this tent and receive a new body not made with human hands. But we learned that inside this earthen vessel there is a treasure. And that treasure, Paul says, is the privilege of beholding the excellency of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he had said, we are all beholding the glory of God as in a glass or as in a mirror, and we are being changed from glory to glory into that same image. So that the treasure that you and I have inside this physical existence in this earthly body is that we get to know Jesus. We get to see his glory. We get to encounter him as we worship, as we pray, as we study the word, we get to encounter the presence of Jesus. So we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, in our weak and frail and failing and inept bodies, we house the glory of God's presence. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How many are thankful for that this morning? So we house in this earthen vessel the presence and the glory of God. So that was the front end of our section last week. We ended with this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we learn that we are stewards of that treasure that treasure in us, we are gonna be judged one day for what we have done in our bodies. We are stewards of that treasure and one day all of us will be called to give an account. We will stand before God and God will say, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you had this treasure in your earthen vessel. What did you do with that? And what did you do in your earthly body? We will all stand before God and give an account. So in a, it is in a sense a statement that actually conveys the truth of the parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents. Uh, to each one is given, one is, one is given five, one was given two, one was given one, and the master left, and when he returned, he said, what have you done with it? It's a, a parable about stewardship, and so we will one day be asked, what have you done with that treasure that's in this earthen vessel? What will we do with the glory of God, the presence of God that we have housed that has lived inside of us. No matter what comes, we should say, as we talked about last week, a great line of Blaise Pascal, give to me or take away from me, only conform my will to yours. God, do whatever you want, but make my will conformed to yours. So the reason this must be our attitude the reason we must say, I want my will to be conformed to yours is because ultimately all things are God's. All things belong to him. This is kind of our jump off text this morning, verse 18. 
Now all things are of God. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It is God's plan that matters. We are only laborers in that plan. We must place ourselves under his truth because all things are God's. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel, but it all belongs to him. And as good stewards, then, we must align ourselves with his will and place ourselves under his plan and his truth. So all things are God's. That is the focus of just a few thoughts that I want to share with you today. So number one, in light of all things being God's, we begin by recognizing we have a divine obligation. If everything is God's, we are obligated to him. How many believe we are obligated to God? There is an obligation that comes with what he has given us. This is what Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade God, persuade men, but we are all well known to God. And I also trust we are well known to you, Paul said. And in your consciences, Paul said, we're not commending ourselves again to you. We're actually giving you the opportunity to boast on our behalf, and I'll explain that so that you can have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. But if we're sound mind, it is for you. So let's just begin and jump in with these few verses here. Number one, we are obliged out of deep awe and reverence for the Lord. Our obligation comes because we know the terror, that's what Paul says, of the Lord. There's something of the awesomeness of God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. When we really know the awesomeness of God, there is an obligation. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, because we know that, we persuade men. Paul knew the terror of the Lord really well. Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was headed to kill Christians, and God struck him down with a bright light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his whole life was transformed. He had this firsthand encounter with God. It was not debilitating fear, but it was fear that motivated and aroused him to an appropriate faith that employed action. He had such an encounter with God that he said, now that I know you and I know who you are and I know your greatness and your awesomeness, it is because of that I'm obligated to persuade men. I've had such an encounter with you that I'm obligated to share what I now know. Paul notes that God knows his heart. Paul said, God knows me and I trust that you know me as well, but I'm doing this because I have encountered the presence of God. Paul does not mean, and I told you I'd explain this to you, to be self-commending. He, he's not saying, look at me, look what I've done, look at what I've experienced, but Paul is actually giving them something, the Corinthians, by which they can defend him. You see, and I don't want to rehearse the whole series, but Paul is under attack. People are saying you're not a real apostle because you're too weak, because your body is too frail, because you're not all that articulate, because you're not taking people's money like the other apostles do, because you've not really seen Christ. All of these things were being leveled at Paul. And Paul said, I'm telling you this, not to brag, not to commend myself, but so you have something to say to them to defend me. 
against the false apostles. Paul said, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we're giving you an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer to those who boast in appearance and not in heart. That's what they were doing. They were looking at Paul's little weak, frail body and, and his inarticulate ability to really preach in a persuasive way. And, and he kind of fumbled on his words or whatever. And, and they were saying, this can't be an apostle. Paul said, I'm trying to give you something to defend me to them who judge not after the heart, but judge after the appearance. The fact of the matter is the Corinthians should not have put Paul in this spot to begin with, but they did. They should have defended him, but they failed. His defense is not to boast of himself, but to uphold the integrity of the ministry. He is giving them something to say to those who looked at the outward appearance instead of the heart. They boast in appearance and not in heart. Thirdly, Paul makes it clear that whatever he does, or however they read him, he is surrendered to God. Paul says, if you look at me and think I'm beside myself, it's for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. That little phrase, beside myself, is the Greek, ex istami. And it means a static or mystical experience. If you look at me and think I've had some kind of a static, crazy, mystical experience. By the way, it's the same word that was used. Remember when Jesus was working so hard and ministering so diligently that his family came and they tried to pull him away because they said Jesus is beside himself. He was so passionate about ministry. Paul said, if you look at me and you think that I am beside myself, it is for God. If you think I'm out of my mind because I'm working in this way, his passion and his intense persuasion made them think that this guy is a little off. Can I just add this? We're gonna put it up on the screen. It is dangerous when we take the world's standards for effort and tenacity and measure kingdom work by that same standard. You know, there are those who give themselves to ministry, who go at it really hard. Some people say, man, you're just a little, you know, you need a rest, you need to calm down a little bit. But it's dangerous when we put the world standards and we tie it to ministry. Paul said, this is important stuff. I know the terror of the Lord. I've encountered him. That's why I'm going at it like this. That's why I persuade men. This is not the case now because you're not all in ministry, but if I was talking to about 400 people in ministry, I would say don't take the world standard for effort and think that's good enough because ministry deserves our greatest tenacity because we're talking about eternal things. Somebody say amen if you believe. That's what Paul was saying. This passion for ministry was the hallmark of all that Paul did, his energy, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 1, 6 and 7, Paul said, if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer, or if we're comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake in the consolation. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, 12, Paul says, so death is working in us a life in you. Paul was passionate. He knew the terror of the Lord. This divine obligation, get this, 
to persuade men is rooted, number one, in what we know. Please get this, but it's also rooted in what he, Jesus, did. Paul said, because of the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. But now in verse 14 and 15, he says the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You see, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But not only knowing something, but knowing what he did for us. He demonstrated in the cross. That's what drove Paul. It wasn't just his encounter on the road to Damascus. It wasn't just an experience he had. He knew what Christ had done for him. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Some translations use the word constrain us. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the word seneco. It means it boxes us in. We have no other choice. Remember David when Michael criticized him for getting a little crazy in his praise and she said, you made a fool of yourself. And he said, I'll make a greater fool of myself if I'm worshiping God because I'm constrained by that. I'm boxed in. What he has done for me forces me. It drives me to persuade and tell others about Christ. How many are so compelled by the love of Christ that you want to share what he has done? Paul said, it's not only that I know the terror of the Lord, but it's what Christ has done for me. I have a divine obligation to persuade men because of my encounter with him and because of what he did on the cross. Notice what Paul also says here. Knowing the terror of the Lord, or those who live, he said, not all, but one died for all. How many believe Jesus died for all? How many believe that? It crushes the whole idea of the limited atonement. That he only died for a certain group of people, only the elect. He died for all. But those who live, which are not all, not all except him, are those who live not for themselves, but subject themselves to the lordship of Jesus. So knowing the terror of the Lord and the act of the Lord on our behalf, we are under obligation divine obligation to persuade men of Christ's salvific work. I love this quote by Oswald Chambers, the highest Christian love is not devotion to a work or to a cause, but is devotion to Jesus Christ. We are obligated. How many believe we have a divine obligation to share with others? Number two, not only do we have a divine application, obligation, but because all things are God, we also need a divine reorientation. Therefore, from now on, Paul said, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we live, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things have become new. This is a really exceptional truth. I want you to follow this. And I, I've taught this many times and I've preached this. But something really jumped out at me that I'm not sure I had ever seen before. It's an exceptional statement by Paul. Paul said, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
That's how Paul was being viewed by the false apostles. They looked at this little weak, puny guy. They saw those gnarly hands that had had to put their hands up when he had been stoned and beaten and his hands were probably gnarly and they saw this little tiny guy. He was not imposing at all. He wasn't horribly articulate and everybody knew him by the flesh. He was weak and he was frail. He was beaten down. He had been persecuted. Paul said, from now on, we regard no one after the flesh. But what is interesting is, Paul admits that that's how he once viewed Christ. Paul said, I used to see Christ after the flesh. I just saw Jesus as a crucified Messiah pretender. I thought he was just a guy running around saying, I am the Messiah, but he really wasn't. Paul said, I only saw him after the flesh. But Paul said that entire perspective was wholly reoriented on the Damascus Road when he saw the risen Christ. Paul said, I no longer see him after the flesh. I don't see Jesus now as a pretender. I don't see him as a wannabe Messiah. I now see him as the risen Lord. James Scott says what had previously been a stumbling block, a crucified Messiah, became the center of Paul's new existence. No longer does Paul see him as just as a weak guy that got crucified on the cross claiming that he was Messiah, but now Paul has had a reorientation and he now sees him as the risen Christ and Lord. You see, like Isaiah had prophesied would happen, Isaiah said we saw him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. But Isaiah said, but instead of being smitten by God, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he has seen Jesus after the flesh. I'm going to kill more Christians that are following this pretender Messiah who was crucified in Jerusalem, but he has a reorientation because he has an encounter with Jesus and his whole life changes. Now Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be made conformable unto his death. Paul now has been reoriented because he has come to know Christ. He's a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Would you look at me for just a moment because there's implications here I could speak on for the next hour or so, but I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds worth. Not only do we need a reorientation of who Jesus is, we need to allow that reorientation to reorientate how we see one another and not after the flesh. Not judging their looks, not judging their abilities, not judging their strengths or their weaknesses, not judging whether or not they look like us when they walk in the building or not, not judging their past lives, but instead seeing them for what Christ has done and what Christ will do through their lives. Somebody say amen if you believe that. That's how we have to be changed by Christ so that we are reorientated to how not only we see him, but how we see one another. In his book, My Name is Asher Lev, Chaim Patak, main character, is an awakening artist, beginning to see the world with a different perspective. 
The author captures a simple moment at a family dinner from the emerging artist's point of view. He says, that was the night I began to realize that something was happening to my eyes. I looked at my father and I saw lines and planes I had never seen before. I could now feel with my eyes. I could feel my eyes moving across the lines around his eyes and into and over the deep furrows of, on his forehead. He was 35 years old and there were lines now on his face and his forehead. I could feel the lines with my eyes and feel too the long, straight, flat bridge of his nose and the clear darkness of his eyes and the strong, thick curves of the red eyebrows and the thick red hair of his beard graying a little. I saw the stray gray strands and the tangle of the hair below his lips. I could feel lines and points and planes. I could feel texture and color. I felt myself flooded with shapes and textures of the world around me. I closed my eyes, but I could still see that way inside my head. I was seen with another pair of eyes that had suddenly come awake. And then we're challenged with these words. What if we changed the way we looked at people? What if we paid attention to people with a new set of eyes that suddenly came awake? Might we see the helpless and hopeless condition of people with whom we come into contact every day? Noticing may be the first step in bringing someone the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God. We begin to see others, ourselves, and even God differently, people we never noticed before because we never paid attention to them quite suddenly matter to us in ways we cannot explain. I talked to you real personally here for just a second. I've been a Christian since I was about six or seven years old. And I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. And I'm ashamed to say that I haven't always seen people through the eyes that Jesus sees them through. And I would suggest that, that there are Christians here this morning, all of us, who could stand to have such an encounter with Jesus that we have a reorientation as to how we see one another and how we see people that walk in this building and how we see people that we witness to. We tend to sum them up and think, well, I don't know if they can do anything or not. I don't know if they'll ever turn their life around or not. I can just tell you over the last few years, and sometimes I stand over here in worship and I kind of scan the audience and I see people's lives that have been changed, lifting hands that 20 years ago, I might have said, I don't know if they'll ever make it or not. Folks, we need to have an encounter with Jesus that not only makes us aware of our obligation, but reorientates the way we see one another and what God wants to do in their lives. How many believe that to be true? It's so important. If we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we need to encounter Jesus in such a way that we have new eyes to see people in different ways. I need to hurry. Number three, we, uh, because all things are God's, we must enjoin a divine intervention. Look at this. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Look at this. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now we, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. 
For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can I just say two or three things here? And there's so much in this text, I'm not even scratching the surface. But the new order is in Christ from God. There was divine intervention in the world. How many are thankful for that? God so loved the world that he gave. The word became flesh. So the new order is in Christ from God. Two things here. Number one, God has reconciled the world. This is the reconciliatory work. But secondly, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is the reconciliatory word. Not only did God do something, he has now given us something to do, and it is the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation means the reestablishment or the restoration of a broken relationship or the exchange from becoming enemies to becoming friends. Certainly that was the case with Jew and Gentile in the cross. Certainly that was the case with God and humanity. Not God being reconciled to humanity, but God takes the initiative to reconcile humanity to himself. Is there anybody in this room that's thankful that God took the initiative to reconcile us to him? We couldn't get there. We were separate, we were distant, we were enemies, but God took the initiative and now we are ambassadors for the new kingdom. We are ambassadors of Christ. The word ambassadors is an imperial term. In the ancient world, Roman leaders would receive ambassadors from lesser nations. If I was the emperor of a great nation, I would receive ambassadors from the weaker nation. But here, the all-powerful God of the universe, in all of his greatness, sends ambassadors to broken humanity. It's not the weaker going to the greater. It's the changed and transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit going to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Again, there's a Moses connection that we talked about a few weeks ago when Israel sinned. With the golden calf, Moses sought to mediate. And when we turn from God, God sent Jesus. And Jesus sends us. How did he reconcile the world to himself? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, again. He made him sin. Would you just, just shut your eyes for just a moment and just listen to this. He made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Say man, if you think that's good news this morning. He who knew no sin had never sinned. He didn't just take a little sin. He became sin for us. He became what we are so that we might become what he is, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, God reconciled us to himself. Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a church father of the fourth century, said it this way, the elements are presented in their bare simplicity. 
the sinless Christ took our condemnation that for us there might be condemnation no more. How many are glad there's no condemnation in Christ? It's this message we proclaim as ambassadors. Paul said, because of this, we implore you, be reconciled to God. We must enjoin his intervention. Let me close with this. Um, we are called to engage the divine urgency. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, we then, because of all of that, as workers together with them, we also plead with you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you, and in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close while you're standing, if you don't mind. tackled a huge passage of scripture and there's so much more to be said but I want to continue moving through this series I want you to get the heartbeat of this text so now Paul is concerned just listen we're winding this down Paul is concerned that they might reject him because of what the false apostles have said they might look at his weakness and say, he doesn't have anything to tell us. And he's afraid that uh, if they turn from him, they might receive a gospel that is really no gospel at all. It's a perverted form. And that could lead to disaster. And he said, so I beg you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And then Paul says, never could there be a more favorable time than now to respond to the gospel. And I would say that is true today. Never could there be a more favorable time than now to respond to God's call to embrace the gospel or if you're a believer, to embrace the call to be God's ambassador. The message of reconciliation is the message with which we have been entrusted. And I'm just telling you, never has it been more needed in our world than today. We're not gonna reconcile Republican to Democrats or nation to nation. That's not our job. We're not ambassadors of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We're not ambassadors of the United States of America. We are ambassadors of Christ who became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He's entrusted us with a message because we know his presence, because we know what he did at Calvary. He's entrusted us with that message. George Guthrie writes of the message of reconciliation, certainly this message lies at the heart of ministry in the church. But the church itself, composed as it is of people, is messy. How many know the church can be messy sometimes? People skew messages, both in their thinking and their living. In fact, the church's context, our fallen world, is at its very core a place of strained, shattering, and shattered relationships. And our mess blurs the message 
we need the message to attend to our mess. We need the message of reconciliation in our lives with one another, with God, to attend to our mess. And then P.D. Tripp wrote, the church is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people, how many of you know you're flawed this morning, where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better and learn to love others as he designed. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for your word today. Lord, it's not been the most articulate message I've ever preached, but it contains maybe the most profound truth in all of your word, and that is you became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you did it for all of humanity. And you've called us to share that with all of humanity. Help us, Lord, not to fight against what you want to do in our lives. Help us not to resist being fully reconciled to you and to one another. Stir our hearts, oh God, I pray. In Jesus' name. Just keep your heads bowed for just a moment. Can I just read you a real quick story? I think it has some pretty powerful application. It was on March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hiru Onada. 1974 was the last World War II Japanese soldier to surrender. Not had been left on the island Lubang in the Philippines on December 25th, 1944. Been left with the command to carry on the mission even if Japan surrendered. Four other Japanese soldiers were left on the island as Japan evacuated Lubang and one soldier surrendered in 1950. Another was killed in a skirmish with local police in 54 and another was killed in 1972. And so Anada continued his war alone. Every effort to convince him to surrender or to capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing that Japan had surrendered and that Japan was now an ally of the United States. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan, but he refused to believe or surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land. He raided fields he guard and gardens of local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 nationals and during his 29-year personal war. Almost a half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender. And 13,000 people were used to locate him. Finally, on March 10, 1974, almost 30 years after World War II ended, Honada surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command his former superior officer who read the terms of the ceasefire order commanded him to surrender and he handed his sword to President Marcos who pardoned him and the war was over. He was 22 years old when he left the island. He returned a prematurely aged man of 52 
And Onada stated nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. And like Onada, there are people fighting a lonely battle against God who is offering reconciliation and peace to them. And maybe that's you today. And you're just trying to stand up and resist. I can do this on my own. Maybe that's you or maybe that's someone you know. We have an urgent obligation to share the reorienting power of God who divinely intervened and brought the hope of reconciliation to a lost world that needs Jesus. We're obligated to share that. Your heads bowed this morning for just a moment. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that would say, Pastor Kevin, my heart is not right with Jesus. I know God sent Jesus to reconcile me to him and I'm not yet reconciled. I've never let go. I've been fighting that battle, saying I can do this on my own, I can resist. You're like that Japanese military man who's just resistant to God, but today God is saying, I want you to yield yourself to me. Maybe that's you today. If that's you, would you slip up your hand and say, Pastor, today I'm, I'm giving my life to him. I'm surrendering to the God who became sin for me. Anyone in this room that would say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. Anyone in this place? How many would say, with your heads bowed for just a moment, say, Pastor Kevin, I, I want God to reorientate the way I see others. And I want to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God for his sake. How many would raise a hand with me and say, that's the desire of my heart. Father, I pray that that would um, take root in our lives. It would not be a meaningless lifting of our hand, but instead a significant commitment to be the people of God that you've called us to be. I pray, Lord, that you would ramp up our tenacity in these days to not see people after the flesh but see them as people that Jesus died for help me to do that help us to do that as a church and to proclaim the hope that there is in Jesus Christ